Uh, so good. God's grace has come to us. That's really good news. I need grace from God, from all of you, uh, from my wife on a daily basis, and I'm glad I've got it in all three of those places, <laughs> most of all from God. So I'm thankful for this church family, deeply, deeply thankful. We've been here 19 years, and I have a sabbatical from my job at Biola University where I teach. My name's Eric, if you don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here. And I also have a sabbatical from Grace for the next few months. So this will be my last sermon for a while until about mid-December when we get back. We're heading out of Dodge. We'll be living at Hume Lake for the fall, leaving next, next week. Yay. Is that for Hume Lake? Oh, oh, the Petersons. Hey. Hey. Yes, Petersons are back there. Hi, friends. They live at Hume Lake. Yes. Um, I guess they're glad we're coming. Or maybe that was We Like Hume Lake. I don't know. It's probably both. But um, yes, we're looking forward to hanging out with them a lot again. We used to be neighbors, and we'll be neighbors again, so that'll be great. But we're going to Hume. Thank you so much. The elders have seen fit to coincide a sabbatical from Grace along with one from Biola, so... We will dearly miss our church family here, but our prayers will come back more refreshed and ready to serve, and um, we will certainly miss you, but we're going to rest and read, and kids will be in a charter school up at Hume. It'll be good. It'll be the first time in a decade Donna hasn't homeschooled, so I'm really happy that she'll be able to walk around the lake not having to think about lesson plans and curriculum and things like that, and so it'll be good, and I'm Encourage the kids will be in an environment where they get to climb trees and fall in streams and get in fights, and I don't even know about it. Um, <clears throat> so I do. I'm sad for my kids that their childhood is so different than mine um, in, the, in those kinds of ways. So hopefully we'll have a little, little bit of a little house in the prairie kind of life for a while up there. That's what we're after. Well, I actually just got back from a week-long backpacking trip through the mountains in the Sierras with my son Sam. It's a great time. I, I watched Sam just become a better young man every day and kept wondering how I got so old. <laughs> Climbing those mountains in a way that didn't used to bother me at all, but wow. So we had, but we had a great time. It was a really good time. And one day after the hardest day of hiking, lots of elevation gain in one day, I was sitting by a lake soaking my feet in the lake there up in the mountains and a man who had just hit a wall he said after 18 miles who does this kind of thing all the time was just a year younger than I am John sat down next to me and we started talking it was immediately obvious he was not from anything above the Mason Dixon line and it was Arkansas after all and and I so enjoyed my about hour-long conversation I had with John there in the mountains and it was great. He, he was very interested in talking about Jesus and my relationship with God, and he felt freedom to really preach to me what he believed, and he said, I think it's good to have God in your life, but I think life is really about is finding what your passion is. I think everyone has one passion, and then you have to pursue that passion and find that passion and get after it and attain it. And, hey, Jonathan, good to see you, brother. Yes, he was on the hike with me. Is that your wife? This is Jonathan Belzora. Love this brother. He's visiting us. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, brother. We bonded on that trip. 
It's your wife. I'm Eric. So good to meet you both. Yeah, there on that trip. Oh, love, love that brother. I'm sure I'd love you too, but I haven't met you yet, really. So, um, yeah, so I was talking to <laughs> He's such a good guy. Um, make sure they don't get out of here without being overwhelmed with, with uh, warmth from all of you. So, um, it's soaking my feet. Thank you. <laughs> he and I are a lot alike in some ways. We help each other out like that. Yes. So I'm soaking my feet talking to John. And he says, you've got to find one passion and go after. And I said, and what's yours, John? And he said, this, hiking. Oh, I live to love it. He said, just last week, my wife asked me, why don't you ever take me on your, your hiking trips? And I didn't have an answer. And I said, man, you should have had one ready. I, I mean, what in the world? And she wasn't happy about that. But he said, hiking is my passion. Being here in the mountains is my passion. It was great because I was able to talk to him about the book of Ecclesiastes. A man who found everything, all his passions of the world, and found them ultimately completely unfulfilling because they were disconnected from the things of eternity. They were disconnected from relationship with God. And I was able to say to John, God needs to be that one passion. He's not just something that's along for the ride as you find your passions. He is our passion. We're created for him. He's everything to us. And if God is not at the center of all our other passions, they will ultimately be, as Ecclesiastes says, chasing after wind, emptiness, vanity, vanity. And I, I really think he was listening well. He even said before he left, we invited him to join us for dinner and, and for our devotional we have that night. And he said, are you guys going to be talking? Said, yeah. He said, all right, I'll be heading out. I so appreciated his candor. We'll be talking for sure. But, but before he left, he said, hey, what was that book in the Bible again? And I said, Ecclesiastes. He said, okay, I'm going to read that. And that's what we want to think about this morning. We're in the second week of a series on prayer. We praying together in particular. Last week, Kenny preached on praying repentance. Prayerful, going to God with our sin. Until we do that in Christ, we can never have a prayer life. You can have a sense of God and some sort of communion with God, but you can't have the communion that Jesus provides for us where we can boldly approach the throne of grace in confidence as prayerful people of God unless Jesus is the one who enables that to happen. And in that communion with God, there is a longing for God. And that's what we're thinking about this morning, longing for God, having a passion for God in the midst of prayer. Because prayer is not going down a, a shopping list of requests for God. Prayer is communing with God. It's relating to God. It's knowing God in a way where you're conscious of him constantly throughout your life. The Bible calls it continual prayer or constant prayer. And so we have lives of relating to God, aware of his presence, talking to him all the time, where he becomes our greatest passion. And then prayer is just a natural outgrowth of that communion with God, that passion for God, that longing for God. When I started dating Donna in, in high school, we spent a lot of time together because I had a growing desire to know her. And the more I knew her, the more I wanted to know her. And so we made sure we carved out lots of time to get to know each other and pray and, and, and pray together, but also talk together, seeking to know each other and understand one another and better and better. And that still continues. We will be married 30 years in January, and that still continues. 
I just got back from this trip and we, we needed to carve out time to find out how we're doing and what's going on and, and, and who we are becoming every day. And so we need to have that kind of attitude toward God as well. And this idea of prayer, I want us to go into it realizing how hard it is. Prayer takes a lot of faith. I'm convinced, at least in my experience, prayer takes more faith than anything else I do in my Christian life. I think it requires tremendous faith more than anything else I do as a Christian. Everything else we do as a Christian has some residual benefits even if God's not real. You know, singing like we were just doing, it's good for you. It's good for your soul. Even people who don't know God sing and they say, oh, it feels good to sing, right? Knowing the Bible, you can't even call yourself really educated if you don't know the Bible in some way. So there's benefit intellectually and even in wisdom from what the Bible says, even if God's not real. Fellowship, boy, people are so encouraging and helpful in your life, even if God's not real. So many of the things we do as Christians have benefit even if God's not real. But you, on your knees, by yourself, in your room, talking, if God's not real, is really stupid. <laughs> you think of anything dumber, a bigger waste of time? Well, you've got all these things to do and your list of things to do and, and you've got to dive into the day and accomplish all these things and, and you're going to set aside as a priority in your life, the priority in your life, talking to the ceiling? That's stupid, unless God's real. And then there's nothing more important you could possibly be doing. And so it takes great faith to talk to God when you can't see him and when there's no benefit. And actually, it's really dumb to do otherwise. So, it, but if God's real, what's more important? What's possibly more important than that? So in my life, it takes great faith to be, be prayerful. And so I want to read this morning the prayer of a man who is desperate because often we don't really pray until we're desperate. Now, that's not how it should be, but that's often how it is. Do you know over 80% of people who say they are atheists admit that they pray? Even in spite of what they say they believe, deep down, they end up praying, especially when they're feeling desperate, even though they tell you they don't believe in this God that they're praying to when they're desperate. It's fascinating. There's something in us that goes outside of ourselves for the help we need when we know we can't provide that help. And so God is there, and he has given us a sense of his presence. And I want to read this morning the prayer of a man who's desperate for God as we think about what it means to pray together, longing for God, longing to know him. That's what we're about here. Okay, Psalm 63 is where we are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it changes us. It feeds us. It enlightens us. It draws us together as your people. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us in revealing yourself to us through your word. We pray you'd use it now as the spirit who inspired it illumines our minds and transforms us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 63. Oh God, oh, let's start with a superscription. A, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, 
we usually think of David in the wilderness on the run from insanely jealous King Saul. I don't think that's the specific situation we're in here. I think verse 11, where David refers himself as, to the, as the king, must mean he's already the king, which wasn't the case when he was running from Saul. I think then this must be when he was in the wilderness running from his son. Running from his son. That sentence should never be said. But it was in David's life. Can you think of anything more heartbreaking and, and shattering than this kind of betrayal from your own son, Absalom? So I think he's in the wilderness at maybe the lowest point of his entire life. And he is literally in the wilderness and spiritually as well. Watch. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what does he do in this desperate situation? It's beautiful. Watch. So, in light of this, so, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Oh, this is such a wonderful portion of God's word that shows us the heart of a man who's desperate for God and satisfied in God and trusting God. This shows his longing in the midst of his satisfaction and this trust he has in a very desperate situation. First thing I want you to notice is in this desperate situation, he has a very personal way of dealing with it. Oh God, you are my God. This is not the God of his parents or the God of his people only. This is the God who he claims as his God. This is not just a tradition he's a part of. This is not just a formality or a system of belief. There is something very personal here. And when we are in desperate situations, we can feel alone we can feel naked and vulnerable. We can feel shameful. We can feel out of control. And we need to realize we need more than objective truth. We need objective truth. We need truth that's out there. But what we need to do is find that truth ourselves. 
We need a personal relationship with this God. And I don't know what your desperate situation is today, what it may be for you. Some of you may be desperate and have a longing, a passion to see your marriage in a far better place than it is right now. Or to have more financial security or to see a wayward child come back home. Or to see freedom from an addiction or a sin that's taken over in your life. Some of you may be desperate for direction or a job or freedom from depression or anxiety. Freedom from something that's just pulling you away from any sense of security in your life. I don't know what your dry and weary land may be this morning but you need more than just ideas out there somewhere don't you you need more than just a preacher telling you what's true it's got to come home and that's our prayer this morning that this will come home to you that God just won't be facts to you He most certainly is known through facts, but he's got to be known in a way where you can say, oh God, you are my God. It's not enough to say there is a God. You've got to say he is my God, and that means you can approach him based on his promises of being your God and you being his through Christ. None of this can work if you don't know the good news that God offers forgiveness through Jesus. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of our Christian faith, that God has reconciled the world to himself through his Son, and you can have reconciled peace with God through his Son. That's how this happens. That's how you can say you are my God. Not just a God out there who may be good and loving and holy, but this is an ability through Christ to say you are my God. Because that's what Jesus enables to happen. He becomes our God, and we have a relationship with him, and we can say with David, oh God, you are my God, even in desperate circumstances. You are my God. So it's very personal. This is covenant language. There's a covenant trust here. He knows he's a child of God. And so he comes with that sort of confidence. And then he says, earnestly, I seek you. I love that word, earnest. Um, it means like you're doing something like you really mean it. It's not haphazard or flippant or passive or disengaged. Earnestly I seek you. I'm getting after this. I I mean this. I'm serious about it. And may I encourage you to get rid of any idea that it's cool to be passive, nonchalant. No, Believers in Jesus, followers of the one true God, are passionate people, expressive people. And this needs to show up in our corporate worship, in our private worship, in our enthusiasm about God. I think especially men, and maybe especially young men in our culture, are afraid of appearing like they really care. Maybe for fear of failure. It's just, it's just cool to be passive. Oh, on one level, it's cool to be passionate about social issues of one kind or another. But what does that actually look like in our society? You tweet about it. 
You start a petition. That's not earnest passion. That's not really going after it. So even though there may be the appearance in our day of passionate concern about issues, what do we really do about these things we care so much about? Are we really earnestly seeking to follow these passions? Well, if your passion's God, we need to earnestly seek him. Listen to me. You cannot be overboard in your passion for God. You can't. You can't be too earnest in seeking God. You can't be too earnest in passion for God. You can't. We need to ask God to release in us a freedom to pursue him passionately and earnestly and enthusiastically. He deserves that. He calls that out of us. It's not cool to be disengaged. Even though that may be what our society teaches us. He says he earnestly seeks God. He's getting after it. That's what earnest means. An earnest hunger and thirst for God, he says. There's true love and worship that's being expressed until love and worship is expressed enthusiastically and passionately. It's insufficient, incomplete. Earnest means serious in your intention, your purpose, your effort, showing depth and sincerity of feeling. And in a culture of cynicism and disbelief, we can't get sucked into that. People need to know that we care about nothing more than knowing God and making him known. That's got to be such a driving passion for you. If people were asked about you, what are you really passionate about? What would they say? Dogs? Uh, Your kids? Politics? Your favorite author or movies? Your favorite music? Your favorite food? Oh, it's really good to be passionate about all those things. But all your ultimate passions, even how you view all of those things, need to be seen in light of a consuming passion, a singleness of mind in your passion for God, your love for God, your earnest seeking of God. He says, earnestly I seek you. And let's not wait until we're in desperate circumstances to be this way. Let's make this a pattern in our lives. Let's see this as a reality for us all the time. And what's driving this in David? Is it it just some manufactured uh, emotion? No. What's driving this in him is a satisfied longing. You know, Kierkegaard's favorite term for Jesus was the paradox. And what we have here is a satisfied longing. Look what he says. He says, Earnestly I seek you, my my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Very interesting. He's literally in a dry and weary land. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert where water is scarce. We made sure on our trip that we were always camping near water so we could filter it and live, right? And not die and get altitude sickness. And, And so water was a priority, And we would hear water in the distance and say, oh, there it is. Well, this is a desert. We had water all over the place. Compared to this, this is a desert. And so he's taking his physical circumstances of being in a dry and weary land, and he's seeing the spiritual comparison here. And he says, I'm literally in a dry and weary land, but at an even deeper level, I feel a dryness and weariness of soul. And I need God to be my living water to feed this dry soul. 
I need God to be my strength in the midst of my weariness. He needs that God, and he goes to that God, realizing his spiritual dryness and weariness is far greater than his physical. If only we would be that spiritually sensitive. And so he longs for God. His flesh faints for him. Now what drives this? Well, as we read through this psalm, I hope you see what's driving his longing is his satisfaction in God. His satisfaction that he's already experienced. He knows what's coming from God when he seeks God. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied, I'm sure of it, as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So he knows the satisfaction of knowing God and that satisfaction in God drives a longing for more of God. This is one of those those hard to understand things about satisfaction in God. It leads to greater longing. But this is actually true of, of pleasures in life in general, isn't it? Whether it's food or sex or recreation or art or whatever it is, the more you're satisfied in it, the more you want of it. So being filled and satisfied and resting in doesn't lead to a disengaged passivity and said, well, I'm done with that. I mean, when you have a great meal, you say, well, there you go. I never need to do that again. No. No, it's, it's driving your, your passion for this thing. When you really find the joy of something, it drives the passion for it even more. And that's true more than anything else of God. He has a satisfied longing. You only long for what you already love, right? Isn't that interesting? He wouldn't long for God if he didn't already love God. The more you love God, the more you long for him. The more you're satisfied in God, the more you seek to be satisfied in him. It doesn't kill your desire. It increases it. It doesn't uh, quench your passion. It increases it. The more you know God, the more you want to know God. You only long for what you already love. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Spiritual good is of a satisfying nature. And for that very reason, the soul that tastes and knows its nature will thirst after it and fullness of it that it may be satisfied. Edwards goes on. And the more he experiences, the more he knows this excellent, unparalleled, exquisite, and satisfying sweetness, the more earnestly he will hunger and thirst for more. And so we seek this longing, but I know many of you are sitting there saying, I don't know what you're talking about. That's just not me. Maybe I've kind of experienced that, but I don't know what you're talking about, really. It just seems unreasonable. It seems just out there. Maybe you're one of those God guys, but that's not me. What I want you to know is God is patient in the process of growing in our passion for him, in our longing for him, in our satisfaction in him. God has made you uniquely who you are, and he has timing in your life that he's working out in these things. So have patience with it as well. And also realize that I think God loves it when you say to him, Lord, I long to long for you but I don't really I think God says to that good now we can get started it's good to honestly say Lord I long to long for you 
I have a passion to have a passion for you. He's patient with us in this. He, he loves to work with his children right where they are. Listen to A.W. Tozer. Oh God, I've tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. And then he says this, listen. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Those are good prayers. God loves those prayers. Lord, I'm not there yet. I'm so distracted. I don't go to you as my first instinct. I go to video games. I go to distractions. I go to sin. I, I go to things that seem more immediately accessible. I don't go to you. I, I don't long for you as my first and instinctive reaction. Would you, though, make that? See, God loves that desire. He's patient with us in this. I long to long for you as a great prayer. God is so patient in this process. Know this. Even David, David, adultery and murder and deception and betraying his nation. He's patient. He's gracious. So at the end of his life, he's able to say, here's a man after my own heart. God's patient with the process of our growth. I, I can, I, I'm a, there aren't many things I can do well. There really aren't, like four. But I can sleep really well. I, I may be the best sleeper you've ever met. Ask John. The guys on the trip were amazed at how well I can sleep. I can drink coffee right before bed. I can I, and sleep fine. I can take a three-hour nap in the afternoon and sleep like a baby all night. I can sleep on a hard ground. I, I could lay down right here and fall asleep in front of all of you. I really could. But the downside of that is the thousands of times I've fallen asleep while praying. I'm so glad no one's ever recorded my private prayers and then played them publicly. There'd be these long, what was that seven minute gap in the tape? That was a little power nap right there, mid prayer, mid sentence of a prayer, gone. And I used to feel really guilty about that. And I went to a friend who's wise, uh, he's an acquaintance, who's wise. And I, ex I confess this, consistently falling asleep thing I do in prayer. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, why would you be guilty about falling asleep while, while you were praying? And then he said, do you think an old dog feels guilty when it falls asleep at the feet of its master? Oh, I love that. Yes. That's it, isn't it? What is prayer? Producing something that impresses God? You know, getting through my list? Doing something that would impress someone else if they were to hear a recording of it? Oh, it's tragic, especially that unbelievers or new believers think that being a sophisticated Christian means having flowery prayers that impress God as if that were even possible. You know what prayer God absolutely loves? This one. Help! He loves that prayer. Not, oh, matchless Father, we come before you. No, you don't need to do that, right? Help is a great prayer. 
And he's gracious with that. He meets us right where we are. Oh, be free to fall asleep in the presence of your master, right at his feet as you're talking with him. Isn't that beautiful? That we can have that sort of gracious freedom with him. And notice how God-centered he is. I love where he goes. Where do you go with your desperation, with your struggles, with your trials? Where do you go? He goes to God. Oh, it's good to go to friends, but not in the absence of going to God. It's good to go to mentors and, and wise people and you're like, absolutely, got to do it. But not at the expense of going to God. Where does he go? He goes to God with his desperation. Verse two is beautiful. I'm desperate. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm weary. So where do I go? So, verse two, so what do I do? Substances? Immorality? Distractions? No. I go to Instagram. No. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. I've gotten apart and reflected on who you are. I've gone to the place of worship. That's what we do here. That's why we gather like this. We gather to get perspective, to think about who God is one more time, to give everything else in our lives the perspective it needs. I've thought about you. I've gone to the sanctuary, the, whole, the place of holiness, and considered who you are in your holiness. I've considered your power. You can do anything you determine to do. I consider your glory, this overwhelming display of who you are. I've considered your steadfast love, your covenant love, your relentless pursuing never to be denied love. I've considered this. I've thought about it. And I've realized it's, verse three, better than life itself. And what's the response? Look, my lips will praise you. Not for a fleeting moment, but I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. A, a satisfaction in God is woefully insufficient and incomplete until it finds expression in worship. Jonathan and, our, and his son and my son and our car, car ride, all, almost all the way back, we were singing worship songs as well as some really good funky pop songs too. But well, we, were, we were singing worship. It was glorious to be singing praises to God as a response of getting back safely and seeing these wonders of God. And throughout our lives, when we see anything that points us to God, which is everywhere around us, it should lead to worship coming out of our hearts and our mouths privately and publicly, personally and corporately, God's people should be known as worshipers, not just when we gather on Sunday morning, but throughout our days, throughout the moments of our days, when we walk through Stater Brothers, we should be overwhelmed with food everywhere that we actually have the money to buy. You should be worshiping in Stater Brothers, not saying, He's got more than 15 items in that basket. You should be worshiping God <laughs> in this sort of way. That, that's where he ends up, worshiping God. All-consuming worship for life is where this satisfaction leads. True knowledge of God leads to lifetime consistent worship. When he becomes everything to you, everything is a context for worship. He's your greatest desire and your greatest delight then when you realize that his loving kindness is better than life itself. Did you notice that we don't get to any personal benefit of knowing God until verse seven? It's all about God before then. And we can go to God with, I want this, I need this, I want this, I need this. We want and need him more than anything else. And all the benefits are just gravy, just overflow on top of knowing God. 
Let's not lead with the benefits of knowing God. Let's lead with knowing God. Because actually the benefits don't come otherwise. They become idols otherwise. If it's not about satisfaction in Him and worship of Him, He is our joy. He's everything to us. He is our life. Do you love God for who He is? For the beauty of His perfections? Or for what He does for you? Do you ever listen to people talk about heaven? Most people think they're going to heaven and believe in heaven and you hear them talk about it and it's all about seeing their loved ones and streets of gold and no more physical pain or no more mental anguish or no more war and all that's good and wonderful. But all those things are just side benefits of knowing God. Listen to John Piper. The critical question of our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all your friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven with all those things if Christ weren't there? If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk too deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. We cannot focus on the benefits of knowing God. We've got to focus on knowing God. That's why Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In Him, in knowledge of Him. And when we see God for who He is, everything, the entire context of our lives now becomes an expression of worship, a context of worship. That's what our lives become, which means there's constant prayer. We're praying to God all the time. Life has a renewed vigor and taste and joy and vividness and abundance to us it never had before when we weren't finding our life in God. All our other passions need to fuel our passion for God. Our passion for God then gives all our other passions their meaning, their perspective, and their weight. And this always then invariably has to overflow from us. Satisfaction in Christ leads to earnest ministry and fellowship to others so that they too find their satisfaction in Him. We are not happy if only we are satisfied in God. Our satisfaction in God needs to lead to an earnest pursuit of seeing other people find their satisfaction in Him. When they look at our lives, when they hear our words, when they watch our corporate love and worship and ministry together. Worship is best. Prayer is best. Our relationships with God is best and they need to be necessarily interconnected and outreaching to the world, the people in our neighborhoods, our community relationships, prayer, worship is best when it's birthed out of and nurtured in a community within a local church that's reaching outside of our walls to the world. I also used to feel guilty about feeling such a difference between private prayer in my life and corporate prayer in my life. Now, I have a prayer life privately. I think we have to. I think our corporate prayer will be hollow if we don't have personal prayer lives privately. It's got to start there. It's got to start with getting up, getting on your knees, and praying. 
or else our corporate worship will be a charade. But our private prayer then needs to go into the corporate context and it should have a wonderful effect. I went to my, my pastor in Connecticut years ago and I said, John, I, I just feel really guilty that my prayer when I'm with other Christians feels so much more vibrant and it's so much more focused and, and clear and it feels so much more meaningful. And then I, I get alone privately and it just doesn't feel that way. And he said, why would that surprise you? Why would it surprise you that when you gather with other people who are new creatures in Christ, the people of God coming with their experiences and backgrounds and personalities and in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, when you put that together, don't you expect it to have an elevating effect on what's happening? Well, of course, yeah. Don't be ashamed by that. Seek it. That's why it's so good how often I see people here at Grace praying together. We have people come up at the end of the service. You can sit there and pray, and that's, that's good. But we actually think it's better if you come and pray with, and people pray for you, and you for them, and we get a corporate fellowship intertwined with our prayer. And so we seek God together in this so that we grow together. There's something powerful that happens when God's people pray. And that's what we're, what we're trying to encourage at Grace. Yes, private prayer lives. In your prayer closet, it's where it's got to start. But then it's got to find expression in corporate prayer among the people of God. As we long for God together because we're in this together. So let's do that right now. Would some of you pray for us in light of all these things we've been talking about, all these desires we have so that we can hear you Make sure, because this is public, right? So use your public voice so we can hear you. Let's pray together in light of these things as God's people.